you could turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 11. It is our custom here in our church to work carefully through books of the Bible. We go verse by verse through entire portions of Scripture. There's some philosophical reasons for that, the chief of which is that we don't like to skip anything. We believe fundamentally that this is the Word of God and that when we approach it, we are to submit to it, we are to hear from it, and there are both promises and challenges every time we approach the Word of God. Promises that God loves us and He has proven this most clearly by giving us His Son and challenges to live in accordance with that, that God Almighty has renewed us to Himself through His Son and we are to live for His glory. Because it is Advent time, we have taken a brief break from where we are as a church family. We are looking into these ancient prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, who lived and ministered around 700 years before Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was born into this world. And the prophecies that we have been exploring here from Isaiah point us toward the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, that Jesus would come and He would take on flesh. That's what we mean by the word incarnation, that the Son of God really became a true man and entered into our condition. He stepped into our story, and He did this because He loves us, and He did it to rescue us from sin and all the ramifications of the curse that was placed upon the world because of sin. And so we take our time now, again tonight, through the book of Isaiah, and in particular in chapter 11, and we will be much more brief than we typically are when we approach the Word of God, simply because we promised you we would, and so I will keep my promise to you. I want to lay a little bit of groundwork for those of you perhaps who have not been here over the past couple of weeks Isaiah, as I've already said to you, ministered around seven centuries before the coming of Jesus. And not unlike the time when Jesus was born, Isaiah lived in a day when the spiritual condition of Israel as a whole was anything but admirable. By and large, the people, including their leaders, had turned from the one true God had turned inward, rather than having their eyes on him, their eyes were on themselves, which of course is part of the human condition. This lies at the root of human sinfulness. Back originally in the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to look away from God and to look inward, the temptation was that that would bring them happiness. That self-dependence would lead to self-rule, and perhaps, though this would have been millennia before the term was coined, to self-actualization and to pure and utter happiness. But the people were deceived because what they turned toward was empty, and it led to death, both spiritually and eventually, of course, physically. But God would not leave it that way. He promised that He would send a Redeemer. He would send a child. And if you think about it, all the way back in the garden when God came after the first prodigals, Adam and Eve, 
he promised that the rescue of the prodigals would come through a child. And so therefore, if you think about it, the incarnation, the first advent of Jesus, Christmas, perhaps was the very first prophecy that a child would be born of sinful humanity, but he would not be sinful, for he was not only human, he was divine. He was not just son of Mary, he was son of God. But we are getting a little ahead of ourselves. And Isaiah, we have found so far that, as we've already said, Isaiah was ministering to a spiritually corrupt people. And their leaders were making awful decisions, making alliances with other kingdoms that were evil. God had warned Israel about this centuries before this. They were not to do this. Because it was not just a mere political alliance. It became an alliance that would draw their hearts away even further from God. Most of us in sophisticated 21st century America don't worship literal idols. We don't have totem poles somewhere in our backyard. I'm sure that our neighborhood associations would not allow it, and our neighbors would think we were nuts. So we're not worshiping pictures of eagles and bears and and other foreign idols. But, But we have our tendency toward idolatry, don't we? We can make idols out of even the best things. Israel was no exception to this. What was happening in this day and age is there was a powerful foreign country called Assyria. The land of Israel was under threat from Assyria. And seeking to protect themselves from Assyria, they made unholy alliances. Alliances with nations which would create a situation that would draw Israel's hearts even further away from God because of their tendency toward idolatry. Israel's history was marked by that tendency toward idolatry. And not just physical, literal ones, but just like us, toward worshiping all kinds of things, even good things, nevertheless inferior things. For if we choose to worship anything but the one true God, this breaks the law of God. And of course, in God's economy, we will not be happy. For much like Adam and Eve, the pursuit of anything that is inferior will never ever, ever bring us the satisfaction that we so desperately crave. Israel was surrounded by a situation that sucked away their peace. There was a foreign entity that threatened their borders, threatened their very existence as a nation. And rather than turning to God, who had historically been faithful to them, They leaned on their own understanding and turned away from God. And God chose to conquer these nations over time and to demonstrate to them that if they turned away from Him, it would not turn out well for them. Israel was essentially a pretty small place geographically and perhaps even by comparison, small in population. They had started off as a teeny nation that God had used to conquer foreign, unholy powers. But as long as they trusted Him, as long as they looked to Him, as long as they worshipped Him exclusively with all of their hearts, He kept them safe. Which means that even the, the guise of power, military strength, political might, 
clever alliances, that these are not truly the things that lend us protection and safety. And Israel should have learned by this point that when they turn to their own understanding to seek their own safety, to alleviate the pressures outside of them, that it would not bring them peace, but much like their forefathers, they kept repeating the same sins. And we are the same. We are not too much like, uh, we are not too much unlike Israel in our day and age. There are a myriad of things, many things that compete for our attention that, that threaten our peace. Sometimes it's difficult, I think, for us as 21st century Americans to really feel this. If we were reading this text in Aleppo today, if we were in Syria and we were Christians today, I suspect that we would read this text a lot differently than those of us who are sitting here today in our Christmas outfits in a warm place in America. But around the world, brothers and sisters, all over the place, there is hostility, there is, is lack of peace. And even if we don't necessarily feel it from, from foreign powers, it is all around us. Some of you are here today and you are sick, literally, physically sick, and you're frightened. Maybe you haven't even told anybody, but you're freaked out. Or perhaps worse, your child is sick. Our son had a small but important surgery on his hand on Thursday down at Children's. And I was reminded as we walked out after our successful outpatient surgery and came home that there are many families that are sitting down at Nationwide Children's today and they will not be at home around a Christmas tree opening presents but they will be gathered together around monitors and hospital beds, wondering if this might be their last. It might be a job that is threatened. It could be a relationship that is fragile. And even if no one really knows about it, you know just how fragile it is, and you wonder if it will last another year. But there's internal things, too. Our own idolatry that... We struggle to keep hidden, but is, is ruling over us. Fear, mental health struggles, anxiety, stress, pressure, and many, many more. Israel was surrounded by threats to their peace. And we today are surrounded by threats to our peace and whether we feel it on a low level because we suspect that danger might be lurking around the next corner, or perhaps instead it's a full frontal assault because right now there is true danger around us, true pressure, true threats to our existence. Whether it be a low ebb or a full-faced awareness of danger, we struggle with desiring peace and that is why Advent is so important. It reminds us that God has stepped into time and space. Quite literally, He has. Because Jesus, the Son of God, full deity, was born into the womb of a woman to enter into our hostility, to feel what it was like to be threatened by danger, 
to understand our needs and to meet them. I want to read Isaiah chapter 11. Now that I've given you a little bit of context, it might make a little bit more sense. After I read through it, I'll make a few comments about the basic meaning of it, and I want to draw some careful application, and we'll be finished for this afternoon. This is God's Word, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, to recover the remnant that is remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. He'll wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 7, there's a promise that a baby would be born named Emmanuel, and he would be born to a virgin, a prophecy that would be fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. As we saw also in Isaiah chapter 9, this child would grow into a man, and he would not be a normal man, he would become a king. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be like, unlike any other child that had ever been born. Isaiah chapter 11 continues the prophecy about this child born into a man. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, 
he will be called a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is a bit of a cryptic picture, but here's the basic idea. God had made a promise to the great King David that he would always have an heir on the throne. The problem is, by the time that you get to Isaiah, a couple of hundred years after the promise was made to David, the kingdom had split in two, and by and large, throughout Israel's history, the kings were, at best, disappointments, and at worst, out-and-out evil. It would not be long after this that Israel would have no king whatsoever. By the time you get to the incarnation of Jesus, there had not been a king in Israel, a true son of David, for around 600 years. The idea here in this picture of this stump, that the flowering, fruit-bearing tree that God promised David, that his throne would endure forever and bear fruit, it looked by all appearances in Isaiah's day, and especially by the day of Jesus, that that flowering tree had been cut down, and there was no life in it at all. The metaphor of the tree here is that the tree that looked so promising at first was now dead, and the promises along with it. But Isaiah is saying that one day, that out of that dead-looking stump, if you were to peer closely, there is a sprig of life. And though at first the sprig might seem inconsequential, it would grow once again into a mighty tree which would fulfill all the promises of God to Israel and to the rest of the world. The sprig that grew out of the seemingly dead stump is Jesus. Jesus was of the tribe of David, of Judah, son of Jesse. And therefore, one day, through Isaiah's prophecy, 700 years before Jesus would ever come, is the promise that despite the fact everything looked bleak and dark and hopeless, God would enter in literally to the world and bring hope once again. What would Jesus be characterized by? The Spirit of the Lord would be with him. He would be wise and understanding, verse 2. He would be full of counsel and the might to bring his will to pass. And he would have knowledge and he would fear God. And his delight would be in God. And this perfectly characterizes for us what Jesus was like. Jesus lived on the earth perfectly keeping all of God's laws. Something that no man ever had done. But the perfect righteousness of Jesus which he displayed through his act of obedience to all of God's laws, means that he was not killed later on. He was not crucified later on because of his own sins. Jesus did not die because he was a sinner. Jesus kept all of the laws of God. Jesus died because we are sinners. And he became our substitute. He died in our place and because he was perfectly righteous, he offers his perfect righteousness to us. But this is not just about the righteousness that is offered to us by Jesus. 
It's about the righteousness that exists in him. That is to say, we look at him as our perfect leader. When the prophets gave their prophecies, it was much like a mountain range. If you've ever been out in the Rocky Mountains of the United States and you are at the foot or the base of one of the mountains, you might only see one or two at a time. But if you can get up to elevation, if you can summit one of the large peaks in the mountain ranges, you can see for miles and miles and miles. The prophets were prophesying from the vantage point of a mountain peak. We see often things from the foot of the mountain. The prophets saw all that Jesus would do in his first advent when he was incarnated and his second advent, which we still are waiting for. And though we have access to the righteousness of Jesus, if we will place our faith in him, we await the day when he will dwell with us quite literally and we will see with him and we will be with him and we will trust him in perfect righteousness. There is coming a day, my friends, whenever this world will exist in peace. When there will be no more danger, no more threats from without, and no more threats from within. From as far back as most of us can remember, we have never had a day that has not been threatened by low level or by high level. We have always felt, once we knew enough to really understand, that our peace was threatened. And that's one of the hard things about growing up and becoming an adult, is we realize just how dangerous this world can be. And even if we're not threatened by ISIS or disease, we are under threat of what is inside of us. And if we're being honest, we don't like it. But I can tell you, Because the prophets not only foretold the first advent of Jesus, when Jesus would offer his righteousness that we might receive it by faith and be forgiven for our sins, he's coming again. And then we will have a perfect leader. No matter what, even if you like what has recently happened in the political sphere in our nation, you will end up disappointed. Because there is no human that can lead you in the way that you really want to be led, who's perfectly wise and yet perfectly good, who is almighty and can accomplish whatever he wants and will never do it as a bully. We don't know people like that because there's only one person like that. And Emmanuel, God with us, is the promise of hope. And the one who has begun his work of setting this world aright and helping us understand what peace with God is like, one day he will bring it to perfection. And that's really what the next verses are about, starting in verse 6 down through verse 9. The imagery here is of what it was like with Adam and Eve before the fall. When you could live with dangerous animals and, and they wouldn't threaten you. When children could play by the holes of of dangerous, poisonous serpents. And mom and dad wouldn't have to rush out and and usher them inside to protect their very lives. When Jesus came, he gave the promise that peace would come. But because the prophets foresaw what would one day be, we await the day 
when this will be our experience, when there will be no more sick children, when there will be no more danger, no more broken marriages, no more hostility between parents and children, no more friendships that end in misery, no more poverty, no more disease, no more fear. I don't know that I can remember a day in my life when I have not been afraid in one way or another. I cannot wait for the day when I have no more fears. Why is this? Because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to usher in an age of peace that will never, ever end. But there's a sense to which we can know that now. Now, I don't suggest that you go find some timber wolves and hang out with them and play ball. I don't think that you should go find some rattlesnake den somewhere in the rocky hills of Colorado and let your children play beside said rocks. That's not wise. What kind of peace do we have now? That's really what you want to know because you can't quite see what's coming. Well, the truth of the matter is Jesus offers you peace now. And truly, the greatest peace is not that one day you'll get to hang out with wolves and poisonous snakes. The greatest peace that you can ever know is peace with God. If you look with me in verse 9, Isaiah says here that the reason that all of this peace will come is that the earth will be filled full of the knowledge of the Lord. But that has been initiated now. That's why we have Bibles. That's why we have churches. That's why we help people grow in their faith, that they might know God. But how is that possible? It is possible because the Son of God, Jesus, has reconciled us to God if we will place our faith in Him. There's a big word that shows up a few times in our New Testaments. It is the word propitiation. The concept or the idea behind this term is that Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And though there is coming a day for all those who have trusted Jesus, which will be characterized by perfect peace, in the here and now, you can know peace because you can know God. What has Jesus done for you? He has offered you propitiation. He has offered you peace. Jesus took the wrath of God so you don't have to. And at the end of the day, that's what the first advent of Jesus is really all about. The announcement that was made to the shepherds that Harvey read to us about before. The promises that were made to Joseph and Mary And the promises that were made here to ancient Israel seven centuries before Jesus was ever born is a promise that we can have peace with God. And the sin that has separated mankind and God ever since the first sin in the garden, Jesus has eradicated. And so I say to you, you can have peace in the here and now. And though it's not the perfect peace that is one day coming, It is a foretaste. It is an appetizer of what is coming. For truly, the best part of the eternal state, when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, will not be that you have a mansion made of gold, 
It will not be that you can play with wildlife. The best part of the coming age is that you get to be with God. And then your joy and your peace will be complete. And it will never, ever be threatened again. But because the appetizer, the foretaste has been offered to us now, I call you to trust Jesus. Those of you who have already placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope for peace with God, both here and for the hereafter, continue on. Look to Jesus. For those of you who are still considering this and and to whom this might seem a little bit new or even odd, I call you to turn to Jesus in faith because he is the one who alone can bring you peace with God, which is what fundamentally even if you can't put your finger on it, you truly crave. This chapter ends with the promise that one day God will bring Israel all back together. I've already told you that the kingdom had already been torn in two. And if we understand the history of Israel up until our day today, it is even worse. They are dispersed all over the planet. But because God will keep His promises, He will gather them together again and show His sovereign grace to them, and regather them, and shower them with His love. So I say to you today, the day before Advent of 2016, that there is coming another Advent of Jesus, one that will be characterized by perfect righteousness and perfect peace. He will be a leader you can trust implicitly for eternity. And the reason you can know that is because he's already offered you his righteousness if you will receive it by faith. And because one day this world will be characterized by perfect peace with no more danger and no more threat, you can know that at least to some degree in the here and now because you can be reconciled to God because Jesus has offered himself and taken the wrath that you don't have to take. And one day the fullness of renewal when all of God's people will gather together and there'll be no more hostility, no more broken relationships, we will be at peace with God and we will be at peace with one another. And so Advent, we celebrate once a year as a reminder of the fundamentals of our faith, the core of our belief, that sin has been conquered by Jesus and that one day he will come and eradicate all that is sad All the bad things, all the sad things will come untrue and we will dwell with him in perfect peace and harmony for eternity. So celebrate Advent with your families and with your friends looking to Jesus who is our hope, who is our peace. Live at peace with God through Jesus and by the grace of Jesus live at peace with one another. While it is true that our very existence, our very hope for peace and satisfaction seems always to be threatened, Jesus is the one who conquers fear. Jesus is the one who offers us hope and life, both now and for eternity. Let's pray this prayer of peace. Lord Jesus, now, and the hearts of your people grant peace. And whether whether it is the, the low ebb of suspected danger 
for the full frontal assault of actual trouble. Bring peace to your people. May they trust you now. I pray for those who have not yet submitted to you, Jesus, and placed their faith in you, that by your Spirit you will draw them to yourself and give them the peace that they desperately crave, even if they can't define it or understand it. And we also pray that your second advent will come soon, that this world will be characterized by perfect peace and harmony. And so on this season of Advent, we look backward to your cross where you died in our place and were raised again to new life to give us peace with God. And we look forward to the day of your second Advent when we will dwell with our God in full assurance of faith for eternity. Give your people peace. We are grateful for your son Jesus that you sent to be born of the Virgin, to be Emmanuel, God with us, to be the one to rule and reign in our hearts to give us peace. While we wait for perfect peace to come, help us, sustain us. May this season be a happy one, characterized by peace. And though there is danger all around us, may our confidence and hope be in Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen.